First Timothy chapter 4 this morning, continuing on in our study of Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy. Last week we started with a quiz. I'm going to start with a quiz this week as well. This one might be a little more challenging. I'm not going to give grades, though. We'll call this pass-fail. So, um, as we work through this, all those who fail have to sit on this side. All those who pass can sit on this side. (laughs) Sheeps and goats, is that what I'm hearing? (laughs) So, 1 Timothy chapter 4. So, I'm going to give you some names. And I want you to know, I want you to let me know if you recognize any of these names And then we're going to talk just briefly about what they have in common. Does anybody know the name Kevin Max? This I probably wouldn't expect most of the older folks. Yes, and who is Kevin Max? Used to talk for DC Talk. Um, Christian rock band. Um, How about George Perdikas or Perdikas, some pronounce it. That's another one that you may know, maybe not. He was one of the co-founders of Newsboys, another Christian group. Okay, How about Marty Sampson or Michael and Lisa Gungor? G-U-N-G-O-R. Boy, we're not doing so great here. So far, Nate's the only one going to be sitting on the right side. <laughs> they were former worship leaders and songwriters. We've actually sung some of their music. Again, Michael and Lisa Gungor. Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson is more of the composer, if I remember correctly, and then Michael and Lisa Gungor also write, but also sing, produce. This is a name you might know. Abraham Piper. You know his dad. John Piper. He's a famous son of John Piper. This is one that goes all the way back to my days back in college. Tony Campolo. Anybody remember that name? Okay, that's, yeah, there we go. Now we're hitting somebody, right? Yeah. Tony Campolo, he's a famous author, former Southern Baptist. Notice I said former Southern Baptist minister or pastor. Um, how about this one? Some of you homeschool parents probably are going to recognize this one. Joshua Harris. Does that ring a bell? I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Yeah, he was a Christian author. Um, wrote a book on approaching dating and relationships. Okay, so, okay, we, we did okay. Some of you guys recognize some of those names. Um, the next question is, what do they have in common? All those names that I just listed off. Does anybody know what they have in common? Fell from grace, deconstructionism. Boy, you guys are doing great. Did, did you have one too? Did you know what that was? There you go. Man, that is out of the mouths of babes, right? So yes, the answer is they are all fairly well-known, I'll call them celebrity Christians, who use terms like deconstruction, deconstructionism, deconversion, ex-evangelical, and they use it to describe their rejection of historical Christian doctrines or even the faith, their faith in Christ completely. So yeah, we nailed it over here with that idea of deconstructionism or leaving the faith. For the past decade or so, there's been an escalation in the use of those terms by many famous, I'll call them again, celebrity Christians, pastors and musicians especially. Um, it's especially common among the millennials and Gen Z. They love that phrase and that term. Now, I have to be a little cautious here because even though we've seen that phrase used, those phrases used much more significantly in the last decade or so, the term deconstructionism and that is not always used in a, in a 
necessary, or I mean in a um, negative sense. Some actually refer to it as looking at their faith as they've grown up, either in a Christian home or a religious environment, and as they've gotten older, they've had to reevaluate what they were taught, what they learned in their home growing up, or what they learned in their church, and compare it to the scriptures. And so there are many who have learned that what they were brought up in didn't necessarily match the scriptures. And as they began to study, found themselves coming into their own faith in Christ that is in more alignment with the scriptures. And they've used that term too. I had to deconstruct my faith. And so in that sense, it's a good thing. The people that we just mentioned a few minutes ago, for many of them, for most of them, it's not a good thing. It has to do more with abandoning the faith, abandoning historical Christian doctrines, and in some instances, outright declaring themselves to be atheists. Now, it's been interesting, I was reading, not reading, I was, well, I should say, I was reading articles, I didn't read the actual book, but how many of you know the name Ginger Duggar? Anybody remember that? One of the Duggar clans, her last name is Volo, now V-U-O-L-O. She wrote a book just recently called Becoming Free Indeed, and she's been all over um, with podcasts and interviews and stuff talking about the environment that she grew up in. And one of the things that's been fascinating about this, she does not use these, these terms, but she does talk about reevaluating her Christian faith. Um, she was brought up in a home and in a movement that was sort of started by Bill Gothard. Um, I think, if I, got, I think I even wrote down, I, I wasn't familiar with this, but his Institute of Basic Life Principles is the institute that he started. And you may or may not be familiar with Bill Gothard. He's been uh, brought to shame in many respects because of the number of sexual allegations and, and abuse claims against him. But this institution of, of life principles that he had started is an extremely legalistic system. Um, many things that we wouldn't necessarily agree with, some things that we might agree with. But it's very, very legalistic. And there's many things in, in, in that philosophy that are not grounded in Scripture. And so what's interesting about um, Ginger is when she met her husband, her dad actually encouraged the relationship. He wasn't from that background. But one of the things he did that's fascinating to listen to her talk about this, one of the things he did with her was he took her into the Scriptures and began to walk her through the Scriptures while they were dating. And she began to say, that's not what I was taught growing up. And she began to reevaluate many of those principles and things that she was taught. And her book is about um, ultimately how she escaped from the fear and, and the legalism that she was brought up in. And that's not to, to slam the Duggars. I'm not, that's not my point. But there was a very legalistic system um, that she was brought up under. And it was not grounded in the scriptures. And it wasn't until her husband took her into the scriptures. He didn't just argue against what she was brought up and He said, let's just go to the scriptures. And it's neat to hear her now talk about that relationship with her, with her husband and um, the importance of that. And so I've not read her book. I've heard some very great things about her book. I'm not getting an endorsement of it. But it's kind of one of those things where someday maybe I'll pull it aside and, and read it. So in that sense, it was a good thing for her because she is much more aligned with the scriptures now. She's much more free. She understands grace instead of legalism. She talked about how she used to fear how God would judge her if she stepped out wearing the wrong kind of pants or if she did the wrong kind of thing. That There was always this fear hanging over her because she couldn't live up to God's standards in that respect. But she found out that many of those standards were not legit. So in that respect, it's probably a very good thing. There's some other examples, though. You may know the name Rob Bell. Anybody know that name? 
Rob Bell, one of the more popular deconstructionists, in fact, many say that the term deconstructionism really arose with him because he used it back in 2011 when he published his book, Love Wins, which denied the doctrine of hell. He's now become quite popular. For a while, he was considered a pariah. He was shunned by most evangelical pastors and teachers and Christians. Now he's becoming this rock star once again, especially among millennials and Gen Z. He's got a podcast of over 180,000 listeners where he now helps, his ministry is helping people deconstruct their Christian faith. And in, his, in, in regard to what he's doing, it means to reject and to abandon certain historical Christian doctrines. So what does all this have to do with what we're going to do today? We don't find the words deconstruction, deconversion, ex-evangelical in the Bible, but the Bible does warn us about such things. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's the main point of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 today. We're going to describe it as apostasy. That's another term that we'll use to describe this. I'm going to do something interesting with this today. Paul addresses the who, what, where, when, why, and how of apostasy. We're going to walk through that. The who, what, why, when, where, and how of apostasy. So we're using this passage as our anchor passage, but we'll be citing a lot of other verses today. I'm going to go ahead and read the verses, and then we're going to start. So, First Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, or latter times, I'm sorry, later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So the first thing we're going to look at is the who, what, and where of apostasy. The who, what, and where. Paul says that some will fall away from the faith. That actually answers our questions this morning that we're starting with. What Paul is talking about here is something that the Bible refers to as apostasy. The definition of apostasy is the abandonment or the renunciation of a religious belief, in this instance, core Christian doctrines of Christianity, or Christianity altogether. That's our formal definition of apostasy. In the Old Testament, it's described as a turning back. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Right, jump down to verse 45. Is that right? Yep, I jumped all the way to chapter 6. I'm thinking, that doesn't have 45 verses in it. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. It says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord warned Israel repeatedly in the Old Testament about walking away, about forsaking him, forsaking the doctrines of the law. And it's referred to, you'll see in this verse, both the word apostasy and forsaking are together. 
That's what apostasy is. It's forsaking the Lord. It's turning your back on the Lord. In the New Testament, there's actually two different words that are used to describe apostasy. The first one is apostia, which means to rise up in rebellion or defiance. It even means to start an insurrection. The other one is epistemy, which Paul uses here, which means to withdraw, to depart, or to fall away. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament describe this concept of apostasy. Walking away, turning your back on, forsaking the Lord. Now notice that Paul uses the definite article here. Look back at verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. And that's critical. It doesn't mean that people become faithless, because people can have faith in a lot of things. That's why I hate the phrase when people say, I'm a person of faith. My first question is, of what faith? It means nothing. Being a person of faith means absolutely nothing because what's important is what your faith is in. And so when Paul says here that some will abandon or walk away from the faith, he's referring to the doctrines and teachings of Christianity, those things that we hold dear, those things that are described here in the scriptures. The doctrines and teachings of Christianity, and I'm going to even add the historical doctrines, because there are those doctrines, there are always things that the church has struggled with, meaning certain things we don't all necessarily agree on. There's some things that God hasn't either given us enough information on, or, or because of our own fallible, you know, sinful human nature, we don't always interpret things as we should, and so we, we debate certain things. But there are certain things that are not debatable, and there are certain things that we have held as a Christian church since the first century that are not it, not up for discussion. And so, while there's always room for some disagreement on some, I'm going to call them minor issues, and again, those are not because God's not God, but because we don't always fall in brains, we don't always interpret things exactly as we should. So Paul is using the definite article here, which means that the doctrines and the teachings that we hold dear when it comes to Christianity and what's described here in the scriptures. We see it spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Jump down to verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Words of the faith. That's the doctrines, the teachings of the faith. And the sound doctrine which you have been following. So Paul clearly has in mind sound Christian doctrines and teachings. And he's saying that there's going to come a time where some are going to fall away from that. There are all kinds of people in the world who say they believe and have faith even in Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe the Bible is true or that they accept the doctrines and the teachings. Rob Bell would call himself a Christian, but he denies a major tenet of Christianity, which is that we will face God's judgment and ultimately we either live with him in paradise forever or we'll spend eternity separated from him in a lake of fire. He denies a major Christian doctrine among many other Christian doctrines. According to a new study by George Barna and the Cultural Research Center in Arizona at the uh, Christian University of Arizona Christian University, 69% of the U.S. population claims that they're Christians, but less than 9% have a biblical worldview. 70% of Americans still claim to be Christians, but less than 9% actually have a biblical worldview that's shaped on this. George Varda actually said this, Two out of every three Americans think of themselves as Christians, and a majority think that Christianity is, get this, kind of about the Bible. Yeah, 
Kind of. I've heard Christians, notice the air quotes there, say that they're Christians, but they don't believe the Bible. And I shake my head, roll my eyes. Now that's shocking, if you think about it. But, that's not necessarily the people that Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about all these people that use the label, that say, I I believe in Jesus. I want you to look a little further here. The what is that some will abandon the faith. The who is what Paul addresses next. Who are these people? They're not the 70% or the 69% I just talked with you about. The what is the apostasy or the falling away. The who, notice what Paul says, but the the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away. You know what the word some is. It's a subset, is it not? So in this context, who is some a subset of? The context means it is referring to people within the church. Those who call themselves Christians, but not only those who call themselves Christians, but those who are part of the fellowship of the local churches. That's who Paul is referring to. It's some of them. It's not the 69% of Americans that say, well, I'm a Christian and I've never stepped in the church, or maybe show up on a Christmas, or maybe show up on an Easter. It's the people that are in the local churches. Paul says, the who of apostasy is some of them. The Rob Bells. The Abraham Piper, the Gungors, the Joshua Harris. Some from within our own body is what Paul is talking about here. They're people who have at one time or another accepted or at least claimed to have accepted the teachings and the doctrines, not just Christ himself. Otherwise Paul wouldn't describe them as falling away. You cannot fall away from something that you've not claimed So in order to be some, you have to be part of the group. In order to fall away, you had to be part of the group. So Paul says that some, within the body, now we can argue whether they were genuinely saved or not, I don't believe that they are, but we'll get to that in a minute. But they at least claim to be, they at least look like they are, they seem to act like they are in many respects. And Paul says some of them, some within our own body, will fall away. So we know the what, we know the who. The where is obviously the church. From where will they fall away? From the local church? From the body of Christ? Jesus actually warned about this in the Olivet Discourse when he said that as we approach the end times and we face increasing persecution, he says the love of many will grow cold and they will fall away So Jesus describes it as an end time event. Paul also warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Why don't you turn there, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, jump down to verse 29. Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. Interesting how that relates directly to his letter to Timothy here, since he's writing to Timothy who's in Ephesus. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is talking to the elders and he's telling them, even from within your own elder body, some are going to rise up and screw up the flock. They're going to cause some to be led astray. Paul already challenged Timothy with that. Remember, he he wrote to Timothy and he says, don't let them teach strange doctrines. He warns Timothy that there are some within Ephesus, some of the elders, some of the teachers that had been teaching things that were inappropriate. He even gives us some names like Alexander, Philetus, and others. Paul even says that he handed them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. They might not learn to blaspheme. So we basically have the what is apostasy, the who is some within our own body, the where is the church. This brings up an obvious question about whether or not these people were genuinely saved. I believe we can make a sound biblical argument that if you are genuinely saved, if you genuinely have a conversion, if you've been regenerated, that you cannot lose your salvation. I also believe the scriptures teaches that those people will not walk away. It's fairly sound. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. An amazing chapter because all of chapter 1 in Ephesians is about what God has done for us. Talks about adoption and redemption and forgiveness of sins and justification, all the things that God has done for us. When you get into um, the end of chapter 1, we find that it's because of that that we ultimately are saved. And so, in the middle of that discussion, in verse 13, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, Notice he says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. When somebody genuinely commits themselves to Christ, when they accept not just, ah, I believe Jesus, but when they understand what the scriptures teach about Christ and they commit themselves to Christ, when they have a genuine conversion and justification found in Him and they are genuinely redeemed and changed and converted, we're told here that they're sealed. Why? Because they become the Lord's possession, it says here. And the Lord is not going to give up that possession. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible makes a declaration that those who belong to Christ will always belong 
to Christ. God does not give up his possession. And some will say, well, yeah, but what if you walk away? God does not give up his possession. Matthew chapter 13, I think, helps us to understand what we're looking at here. Matthew chapter 13. Still not getting used to this thin line Bible here because I turn pages and I kind of keep going back and forth. Matthew chapter 13, it's a parable of the sower. You, you all know this passage. Let's look at verses 18 and following. This is when Jesus explains the parable that he just told the disciples. Called, we call it the parable of the sower. Some call it the parable of the seed. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, and what has been sown in his heart? This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one, whom, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful, doesn't bear any fruit. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So what's the point of Jesus' parable? He describes how the seed, the word, is scattered. And he describes four different groups of people. The first person is the one who hears the word but doesn't accept it. Outright rejects it because it doesn't understand it. The devil snatches it away. That refers to probably most of the unsaved around us who have heard the word and just refuse to accept it. However, the second and the third types of people that he refers to are those who hear the word and appear to accept it. In fact, they even have a certain amount of rejoicing over it. But it says that ultimately they fall away either because it didn't develop any roots in them or because the world became more attractive. And again, they end up not having any fruit. It doesn't have the intended results. It's only this fourth type of person that indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 160 and 30 fold. And so what Jesus basically describes here is that the second and third group of people, I believe, are the ones Paul is talking about. It's these people who seem to accept the word. They rejoice over what they're taught. But it doesn't appear to be a genuine acceptance because other things choke that out. I think that's what we see with many of these people. It's hard to explain. But some of these people, like Joshua Harris and others, it's years before they decide to deconstruct or to walk away. But when you look at what they say, oftentimes, it's exactly what Jesus describes here. It's the cares of the world, it's persecution, it's other things. Um, there was a gentleman when I was in seminary, I went back to my home church. His name is Tim. Any of you that 25, 30 years ago that might have received letters from Focus on the Family would have received a letter that was written from James Dobson, but it wasn't written by James Dobson, it was written by my friend Tim. I showed up after my first year of seminary, went back home, was looking forward to him. He had given me my first computer to take to college with me. And so I went back, I was anxious to see him, and hadn't noticed he was, or didn't happen to see him around the church too much for the first week I was there. 
Didn't see him the second week, so finally I asked him. I said, you don't know what's going on, do you? Well, he had abandoned a number of things related to some eschatological things and some other things and the whole return of Christ. Jesus wasn't returning anymore and, and had kind of gone off the deep end and actually started teaching some of that stuff in the church before they had to begin to work on him at discipline. And so um, they had said, he's been waiting for you to come home because he thinks we're all too stupid to understand the issue and he thinks you'll understand and he wants to talk to you. So I showed up at his house. We talked and he'd abandoned much of the things that we held dear in terms of the return of Christ and everything else. And as he began to explain why, it had nothing to do with the scriptures. It had to do with an emotional experience he had all growing up. And he began to describe to me how because of these experiences and the fear that he had, what was in the scriptures couldn't be true. And he had finally come to realize that because he came across a little 70-page booklet by somebody that described the fear and the things that he struggled with. And so he abandoned the faith that he was brought up in, the faith that he'd been taught at Emmanuel Baptist Church. How do you describe something like that? That's the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. He doesn't give a timetable. He doesn't say it'll happen after a week. He doesn't say it'll happen after a year. Maybe it happens after five years, ten years, but ultimately Satan takes that and steals it or whatever. You know, we talk about kids growing up in a Christian home and how they have to make faith their own, right? I can't describe all those things. I don't really necessarily understand all those things. I just know that the scriptures describe, Jesus describes people who seem to rejoice, that seem to accept, that at some point, walk away from it. And so Paul, I think, is talking about that that in chapter 4. That some from within the church that look like believers, act like believers, claim to be believers, ultimately will fall away. So, I'm reminded of a passage from John, 1 John chapter 2. Remember what he said? 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. They went out from us He's talking about some from within the church. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be known that they are not all of us. So John describes the same thing. So, we have the who, the what, we have the where. How about the when? When is this going to happen? Look back at verse 1 again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter, or later times, I keep saying latter, but in later times. It's an interesting phrase because our first assumption when we hear that is we just think end times, don't we? Later. Um, However, the phrase is used in a variety of ways in both the Old and the New Testament. The first one is that it's used to refer to Jesus' day. That in the time of the early church. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll just reference these verses for you. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The writer of that says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many uh, portions and in many ways, in these last days, now this is the writer of Hebrews writing in the first century, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 
For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared to us in what? These last days for the sake of you. We've already read 1 John 2.19. Well, one verse above that, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And so that phrase in one way is used in the, Old Te- or in, the, in the Bible to refer to the time of Jesus and that first century. That was the last days. However, it's also used to describe a future time within the lifespan of the church. Meaning, from the first century through where we at, we're at today up to the second coming of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul was writing to Timothy about this future time within the church referred to as the last times, or the last days. Peter again, chapter, or, um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. In the context of Peter's letter, he's referring to a future time, not his own time, but a future time within the life of the church. And so we have so far a reference to the time of Jesus in that very early church, references to the life of the church, meaning some future time from the first century, but within the life of the church. And then the last way that it's used is to refer to the final days of God's judgment at the end of time. John chapter 12, verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is that which will judge him at the last day. So that time of judgment at the very end of time is also referred to as the last days. James chapter 5, verse 3, Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up treasure for yourselves. James is also referring to that time of final judgment. It calls it the last days. Lastly, John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up when? On the last day. And so we see how this phrase, last days or last hour, isn't just a specific thing. It refers to the time of Jesus and that early church. It refers to the time between then and now. And it also refers to some future time as well. And so when you look at what Paul is doing here, it's pretty clear that Paul is using it in probably the first and the second sense. Meaning, he was referring to his own time by saying the explicit, or that the Spirit says that in later times some will fall away. He's simply saying that this is what the Spirit has said. That this is going to happen in later times. And we know that that first century is, in some respects, the later times. Because Paul already has talked with the Ephesian elders about the same thing. He's warned Timothy about the same thing. He's written to Timothy about how to handle the false teaching and the apostasy that was happening right in his own day. And so we can't just look at this and say, this is a future thing that's going to happen. This is something that Paul said was happening in his day, and it's happening in our day. Exactly as all of these writers so far, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, Peter, John, they all refer to apostasy taking place as predicted by the Holy Spirit during the church age. And that's exactly what we see. 
So Paul is referring to his own day and even our day. As one scholar wrote, Paul is speaking about a present phenomenon, something that was happening right during his day, using emphatic future language characteristic of prophecy. He's not excluding his own day. Much scripture was given in a future sense, but also could apply to the present time. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And again, we see that. Paul is warning Timothy about this. In his second letter, it gets even more intense. So the when is that it happened in the first century and it's happening now. We've already given you examples of that, things that we've seen and some of the names that I listed off earlier. Let's move on to the why. Why is this happening? Look back at chapter 4, verse 1 again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. And here's the why. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Why do people fall away? They begin to listen. They begin to pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines that are grounded in one place. Demons. Satan himself. Great liar. That phrase, paying attention, is used four times in this letter, and it has this idea of devoting oneself to something. It isn't just eh, listening, it's devoting yourselves to something. It's used of deacons who are addicted, or who should not be addicted, that's the same word, to wine. Paul in chapter 4, verse 13, tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So, as you read that, paying attention, look at that rather as devoting oneself to something. Devoting oneself to something. We saw this with the false teachers, Paul said earlier. They had committed themselves, it's the same word, to endless genealogies, fruitless discussions, all the false teaching related to the law. Notice that Paul doesn't pull any punches here. Because he says that they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. When Satan tempted Eve, it was done through deceit, was it not? Peter warned that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking anybody that he can devour. One of the ways that he does this is by introducing destructive heresies into the church. False doctrine. False teachers. You know, I've always made it my habit, before I read something, um, I want to know something about the individual that wrote. Either the book or the article. And for me, the most important thing is, where are they drawing this from? And I'm talking spiritual things. What do they use as their source? I had somebody years ago that brought to me a very popular book. And they said, I, you know, the church, uh, church is all over the place. We're leading Bible studies and preaching sermons on it and everything else. And so they brought me the book and they said, we ought to do this in our Sunday school class. And I was familiar with the book. And so I looked at it and I said, well, first off, we just kind of do a Bible book at a time here. So I don't want to preach somebody else's stuff. But if you want that, there's any number of other Bible studies, Sunday school classes doing it. Church is all over the place, so you can do that somewhere else. But in this class, this is what, this is what we do. And he, didn't, he wasn't comfortable. He said, yeah, but I don't see why. It's just a great, great book. And I said, well, tell you what, why don't we do this? I said, have you been paying attention to what's written there and looking up the verses that the author used? And he's like, mm, no. I said, well, do this. 
Go back to the beginning of the book, start over from scratch, and I want you to look up every single verse that he quotes in the book and look at the context. And then ask yourself the question, is what he's using this verse for what the author intended it for? He looked at me a little puzzled. He goes, okay. Came back to me two weeks later and he said, I don't think we need to do this book. (laughs) And I'm like, why? And he's like, whether it's true or not, it's hard to discern. It wasn't a judgment about the book, but he's like, I'm finding out that about half the Bible verses he quotes are taken out of context. They don't support what he's saying. Doesn't mean he was wrong, but he's like, I don't know that I can trust that because that makes an awful lot more work for me to figure out if what he's saying is true. Now, you may know the book I'm talking about. It's a purpose-driven life. Doesn't mean it's a bad book. It was Rick Warren, a pastor. But you know, he wasn't quite as careful as he probably should have been. And I'm not saying that you can't support what's in the book. What I'm saying is, if you're pulling verses out of context and just quoting stuff like popcorn, it's hard. And I learned years ago, I don't want to have to do that. So for me, I'm very restrictive in the stuff that I read. In part because I just need to know how the author handles scripture. I want to know how he approaches scripture. I want to know how he preaches and teaches before I spend time reading what the individual says. Because if I can trust the source where he's getting it from and know that he's handling it appropriately, I'm more comfortable reading it. A lot of times we don't do that. And Satan knows that. And Satan knows that the church doesn't know their Bible. And so he knows he can introduce stuff that sounds really good. He can tickle the ears, as Paul says. And people aren't going to look it up. They're not going to challenge it. Maybe it's their famous teacher and pastor friend or whatever it is. And so it's very easy for Satan to stick stuff into the church. He relies on us just being ignorant, not understanding our word, or the word of God, right? It's the way that it works. And oftentimes people then devote themselves to that. Whether it's their favorite teacher, or their favorite concept, favorite philosophical idea. So that's the why. Why does this happen? People devote themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. How about the how of apostasy? Go to verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. We know why it happens. They pay attention to deceitful spirits. But how does it happen? Well, it's introduced by people like we see in verse 2. Hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience and with a branding, or as with a branding iron. It's through false teachers. They're hypocrites. They pretend to be shepherds, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus describes them. They claim to speak the truth, but they're liars spewing deceit. Their consciences have been seared, which means they can no longer think or reason clearly. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul describes them as holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They only look like godly people. They only look like great teachers. Peter adds that they're those who secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destructions on themselves. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. They introduce destructive heresies. Paul gives an example of such men right here in our passage. We'll just touch on this. It's an example from his day. 
Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. This is a form of legalism. Remember these men were looking at the Old Testament law and perverting it and twisting it and applying it to Christians? So they were denying certain things, including certain foods. So Paul says they forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared and by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And so Paul mentions very specifically one particular heresy, one of the things leading people astray in his day. We've got all kinds of our own issues that we deal with. I've been reading this great book recently here. I've been fascinated by it. It's called Counterfeit Kingdom. You may not have heard the phrase before, but uh, the acronym is NAR. It stands for New Apostolic Reformation. About 80% of the worship music used in churches today comes from two sources primarily primarily Bethel and Hillsong and they're both associated with the new apostolic reformation which has been around for about 20 years they believe that there are prophets today and that there are apostles today and it becomes a a very dictatorial type ministry and other things but some of the things that these people actually believe are mind numbing ever heard the phrase grave soaking they go out and they lay on graves to soak up the anointing of dead Christians. Okay? Um, use the use of tarot cards. Um, they're not called tarot cards, they're called destiny cards. You know, very, very similar. There's a lot of new age practices. Some actually believe in forms of teleportation, being able to travel in time. Now this may all sound rather bizarre and strange, but um, it's all documented. You could watch the videos, you can listen to their sermons and their teaching. Um, but other groups like Ken Bickle with IHOP not the restaurant but International House of Prayer um, Bethel Church I've got a seminary friend guy I went to school with for um, a year who is wrapped up in a lot of Bethel's teachings and I can see a lot of the stuff in him and how it has taken him down a very dark demonic path fascinating book it's all I mean the woman that wrote this um, it's got three books out right now. That This is the, the least of the technical ones. But it's fascinating um, to read about some of this stuff because while some of their music, you'll see these things in some of their music, but not all of their music. We do at times have sung some Bethel songs and some Hillsong um, stuff. You've got to be very careful. Some say we shouldn't do it at all or use any of it. Some have said, well, just... You know, be careful with it. And some of the stuff is fairly new to me because I didn't realize so much of the music comes from people like that. Um, But my my point in in bringing this out is this is infecting churches all over the nation right now. It's shocking the way that it's infecting so many churches. And um, I could cite off author after author and, and concepts after concepts that are born out of this new apostolic reformation age. That's just one example of some of the things that we see happening in the church today. The whole LGBTQIA+, did I get that right? Movement within churches today of normalizing homosexuality. We've talked about Andy Stanley and some of his stuff. Um, We've got our own issues to deal with today. Our own apostasy, our own deceitful heresies introduced by liars who are seared in their own consciences. It wasn't just Paul and the things he mentions here. And so it's introduced by false teachers. And unfortunately the church has not been careful in who they allow to rise to the top and to we, we oftentimes um, elevate people simply because we love the way they preach or teach and we don't do it on the content of what's preached or taught.
And that's pretty clear. So that's the how of apostasy. It's introduced by false teachers. Directly the work of Satan. Now, what do we do with all this? Let me kind of do our, our takeaways from this. Paul's given us the who, what, where, when, why, and how of prophecy. Or I mean of apostasy. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, we need to be able to recognize false teaching. That's, that, that's where it starts, right? We have to be able to recognize what Paul wrote here is instructions to Timothy and told him some of the things he needed to address. And he told Timothy, hold tight to these things. Devote yourself to these things. Repeatedly, he talks about these things and prescribing them to the church. We have to be able to recognize false teaching. And the only way we can do that is we have to understand the book, don't we? I'll be blunt. This generation is the most ignorant generation, biblically speaking, in history. Plain and simple. The church is stupid today when it comes to understanding the Word of God. That, that may sound arrogant, judgmental, but that is the absolute truth, and it's not just me saying that. Christian, or Arizona Christian University has been publishing this report for the last, I think, four or five years. Every year they come out with a new part of it that's been examining not just people who say they're Christians, but looking really within those who genuinely seem to be saved and claim to be saved, and their understanding of the Scriptures, the Word of God, is anemic. There's a reason why we can't understand or, or deceive false teaching when we see it, because we don't know the book. We don't understand it. You know, they talk about how to train people how to recognize um, counterfeit money is you don't study the counterfeit, you study the real deal. If you study the real deal... Whenever anything doesn't look like it, you know it. You know how much fake counterfeit stuff you'd have to study to understand? And then when something new comes out, if all you know is the fake stuff, then when something new comes out, you can't recognize it as fake. And so the first thing we have to do to protect ourselves is we have to understand and know this book, which means if you're not studying this book, if you're only relying on what happens here on Sunday morning, folks, you're at a disadvantage. Pastor Krenz, my mentor, told me one time, one of the reasons he preaches verse by verse like this. He says, I get one hour a week with people. And for some, that's the only time they spend in the Word. I'm not going to give that up. You've got to know the Word. The only way to truly evaluate something is by understanding this. So I challenge you, if you're not studying it on your own, do so. Don't rely on me. I love the fact that you listen. This is a privilege and an honor that I have to be here. But don't rely on me. One of the, the only protection I have when I stand up here in front of you folks is to know that you understand the book and can evaluate what I share from here based on that. That's the only protection I have when I stand up here, aside from God and the Holy Spirit, right? And I rely on that. You are probably one of the most mature groups of people that I've ever had the privilege to teach, and I mean that sincerely. But again, I rely on you to know your book because it's the only protection I have. You need to hold me accountable. And I expect that you will. So, first thing we need to do to protect ourselves from what Paul is saying here, that we might not walk away, we might not fall away, is that we understand the book. Second, we need to be able to recognize false teachers. We don't like judging, do we? We don't like naming names. It's unkind. We need to recognize false teachers and call them out. It's a lot easier to do when we understand number one, isn't it? I have no problem mentioning the name of Andy Stanley because I think he's a heretic. You may think that's arrogant or proud, but he is. 
I'm not saying he doesn't love the Lord, but what he teaches is contrary to the scriptures in many, many cases. I don't mind mentioning other names. I'm, I try to be careful. Paul didn't have a problem naming names. We have some of them in the scriptures. So we need to be able to recognize false teachers and call them out. We shouldn't be buying their stuff. We shouldn't be reading their books. It's one thing to read it to, to maybe comprehend what's happening so that you can compare it to the scriptures and counter it. But too many just, oh, great book, let's just read it. I think about not too long ago, you know the name Sarah Young, Jesus Calling. Jesus wasn't calling, folks. I remember one time at a particular, I was say we were at the Grace bookstore, Grace Polaris, and I noticed there was a display, top ten books being sold out of the bookstore there. Top five were Sarah Young. So I pulled Pastor Mike aside and I said, what's the deal with this? He's like, what? So I explained it to him and he's like, Really? Um, I'm not really all that familiar with her. So I shared a little bit. He came back a week later and he said, I yanked them. That does not belong in our bookstore. How does that get there? Well, the person leaving the bookstore didn't even go to the church. It was a part of another church. Very, and I, This isn't the cause, but a church that um, was very, very open to many of those things. What's interesting is she's now moved on from Jesus Calling and now is starting to write a new series called Jesus Listens. I don't think Jesus is listening. But, extremely popular author and writer, what she writes is heretical. She writes as if she is Jesus, and what she's writing is not Jesus. Many people believe and feel it is. You need to be able to recognize this stuff and call it out. Finally, neither of those things ultimately will completely protect us because oftentimes it's not our doctrine completely protects us. There are many people that have all the right doctrine. doesn't mean they love the Lord. And so the final thing here is that ultimately what it comes down to is we have to be devoting to loving the Lord with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, combined with a sound understanding of God's word, is where our protection comes from. You'll see that in the scriptures repeatedly. You'll see this constant reminder of the importance of sound doctrine aligned with this idea of loving the Lord with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And those two together is what protects us from the kind of things that Paul talks about here. Think about the guy that led me to Christ. I had heard a number of years ago that he no longer believes. I always wondered what happened with that. The guy led me to Christ. Much like this friend of mine, Tim, who had abandoned some of the doctrines, what I had heard was that after he had gotten married, he had some issues with his marriage relationship and began to struggle with whether or not God was really good. And based on his feelings and his emotions and things that happened in his marriage relationship, he decided, no, God is not good. I cannot therefore trust what I've read. makes me wonder. There's one last passage I want to share with you. And we'll wrap it up with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul makes a very interesting statement. If you remember, the Corinthians... Paul had to write 2 Corinthians because they were not being kind to Paul. There were a lot of issues with the Corinthians. And they had accused Paul of a lot of things. And it sounds as if they even questioned whether or not Paul himself may very well have been saved or was an apostle. Some of you may 
if you've got a New American Standard, may notice that the, the chapter heading on chapter 13 there might even be something like examine yourselves. I want to just read this to you because it's, it's, it, there's an interesting statement made, especially in verse 5. Paul says, this is the third time I'm writing to you, 2 Corinthians 13. This is the second time, or third time I'm writing to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present, the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all who rest as well, or and the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. What Paul is dealing with here is there was sin at this church. They were not acting as if they were believers. So Paul is challenging them. Since you are seeking the proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Basically what Paul is saying is they had claimed they had Christ, but they weren't behaving like it. And they were accusing Paul, who had Christ, of not behaving like it. it Make sense? The heretics accusing the prophet of God. Verse 4. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. This is the verse I want to look at. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Examine yourselves. I think it's a call for all of us. We need to examine ourselves. Do we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Really? Do we? And secondly, where do we stand when it comes to what's written here? What is our knowledge like here? Examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. That's Paul's challenge. I think things are going to get worse, folks. I think the scriptures teach that. I think what we are in today, there has been a rapid, rapid decline in the amount of, I'm going to call it trash, that is found within our churches in terms of what we believe, what's being taught, what's being practiced. We are very rapidly approaching, I believe, what Jesus describes as a fairly massive falling away. Paul describes the apostasy of the church shortly before the end times. That may very well be an indicator of what's to come fairly soon here. I don't know if Jesus is coming back in my lifetime or not. But the things that I'm seeing, the acceleration of the apostasy and the false teaching, is accelerating rather rapidly. I want to make sure that we're not there. Again, I believe if we are genuinely saved, God is not going to give us up. But I'm sure that people like Josh Harris and others thought they were but I think if they did a genuine examination, they have realized they weren't. Either that or maybe they were just deceived. So I'm going to leave you with that. Not a touchy-feely good message, but hopefully it will challenge us to examine ourselves. Be careful. Get into the Word. Make sure that what we believe is what's wrapped up in here.